0: My name is Molly Krukenberg. uh, with Jody Foley. We're going to be speaking about cultivating happy campers, KOA, and late 20th century camping. So in the summer of 1869, the previously quiet Saranac Lake in the Adirondack Mountains experienced an influx of visitors wishing to enjoy America's newest recreation of camping. Campers were inspired by a How to Camp book called Adventures in Wilderness written by Minister William Murray. The book promoted nature as both a spiritual and physical cure to the worries of the world. The popularity of the book and the resulting camping craze were a result of the booming post Civil War economy, which had increased middle class wealth and leading to disposable incomes and previously unknown leisure time. Other aspects of life had changed rapidly after the Civil War as well. Growing urbanization and industrialization, shifting gender, class, and ethnic roles, and increased social diversity left many city dwellers alienated and with their sense of identity adrift. Yearning for belonging and connection, these new city dwellers heeded Murray's call to the wilderness as a place to reconnect spiritually and improve their physical well-being. Destination campgrounds appeared at about this same time. In 1874, the YWCA established its first camp in Pennsylvania, catering to women. It took the YMCA 11 years to catch up, building their first camp for men in 1885. And over the next few years, girls and boys camps were constructed by the Boys Clubs, the Boy Scouts, and the Girl Scouts. National parks were a natural fit with the growing camping craze. Established in 1872 and 1910 respectively, Yellowstone and Glacier National Parks attracted many visitors to their vistas. In the earliest years, the campers visiting the parks were generally wealthy, and their trips often lasted for several weeks. They were accompanied by guides and transported themselves and their gear on horseback. The park saddle horse company operated in both of Montana's national parks, provided full-service camping for their visitors, who ended their days at semi-permanent campsites with wall tents to protect them and cooks and staff to wait on them. Outside of the realm of the wealthy, most early campers were seeking escape from their urban lives, and many used their automobiles to do so. Early in the 20th century, the automobile had become an integral part of the camping experience. The first campers using cars did not want to commit to specific plans or destinations, so they packed gear that would allow them to feel at home or wherever they happened to stop for the night, even if it was a park, a field, or just the side of the road. While some automobile owners tinkered with their own vehicles to equip them for camping expeditions, in 1910, Pierce Arrow introduced the first motorhome offered for sale. Early campers, like the one shown here, which boasted beds, an icebox, and all the comforts of home, and they became more and more widely available, although the cost to produce a motorhome kept production relatively low until after World War II. More people on the road, in the automobiles or motorhomes, auto camps began to appear across the United States, with the first city-run auto camp opening in Arizona in 1913. The first of these camps were simple, located in parks or fields outside of towns, but within a decade there were thousands of auto camps around the United States. And while earlier camps were free, by the 1920s privately owned camps opened and camp owners began charging fees for their services. Campers also used their automobiles to pull travel trailers. The first non-tent travel trailer was built in 1910, and in 1916 the first tent trailer appeared. In 1920, the iconic Airstream trailer hit the road, although it wasn't called Airstream until into the 1930s. The 1920s were boom years for camping. Motorhomes and travel trailers became smaller in design and weight as new equipment became available, such as collapsing stoves, pressure lanterns, and sleeping bags. With improvements made to roads, camping enthusiasts began venturing further afield, visiting the country's parks, forests, and traveling longer and longer distances from home. In the 1930s, during the Depression, vacationing of any kind was beyond the means of most Americans, and the number of campers declined. Instead, during this period, we see government-operated campgrounds being improved by the Civilian Conservation Corps, a public relief program for unemployed young men. These men provided the manpower needed for upgrades and new construction projects for many campgrounds and national forests across the country.
1: As the country recovered from the
0: depression and came out of World War II, there was another jump in the number of Americans heading for the hills to camp. As returning GIs and their families sought affordable vacation destinations. Added to that, the burgeoning interstate highway system offered a way to go farther faster. So into this world of the continual rise in the popularity of camping as a leisure activity, stepped Dave Drum. Dave was a fertilizer salesman with a penchant for ideas. Around 1960, he purchased land on the Yellowstone River with the idea of selling it to the federal government at a profit when the new interstate was built. Although the interstate ended up north of the land, Drum had other possibilities in mind for the property. As the camping craze accompanied by the growth in the RV business boomed, cities like Billings began to get frustrated with campers who were parking their vehicles at city parks, in parking lots, on the streets, and in many other places that were not intended for camping. With his land in mind, Drum approached the city of Billings with the idea of a campground. The city approved of his idea and assisted him with setting up utilities to the site as well as with road signage. Around the same time, the 1962 Century 21 Exposition opened in Seattle. During its six months in operation, over 10 million people attended the event, which was better known as the Seattle World's Fair. Featuring the newly constructed Space Needle, monorail, and Washington State Coliseum, the fair is credited with revitalizing Seattle's economic and cultural life. With this property in mind and city approval, Drum sought to capitalize on the travelers making their way through Montana to and from the Seattle World's Fair. On his land, located in a scenic cottonwood grove, he built showers, a laundry, restrooms, electrical hookups, and a small store, and offered travelers a safe place to stay for just $1.75 a night for a family of four. That first year, the campground was so successful that Drum, with partners John Wallace and Bob Borman, decided to explore expanding the initial concept. John Wallace, who had supplied propane to the campground, worked with Drum to develop a survey of the previous summer's campers. The results of the survey overwhelmingly indicated that Americans were ready for the concept of a system of campgrounds located throughout the country. Drum and his partners envisioned a national system of campgrounds offering the same affordable but pleasant accommodations found at the original Billings campground. As they considered a name, they settled on Campgrounds of America spelled with a C. But they couldn't copyright the name because they were using the common spelling of the word campgrounds. So they settled on campgrounds with a K, and the brand was born. In 1963, a still recognizable logo was designed, a patent was registered, and a franchise agreement was drafted. The first franchise agreement was sold in 1964 to a lawyer from Cody, Wyoming, and by the end of that year there were seven franchises. The first KOA franchise convention was held that same year in Billings and started a long-standing and still-running tradition. As recognizable as the logo is the unique A-frame structure of KOA campground offices. Designed by John Wallace, the structures were shipped out to all new franchisees. From its earliest inception, KOA focused on selling a brand that produced campgrounds with the familiarity that would appeal to the nation's campers. Campers could expect similar accommodations, services, and cleanliness at each KOA that they visited. Over the next decade, KOA built on their initial vision by supporting their franchisees, setting directions for campground owners, and creating tremendous growth for the company. In 1966, Darrell Booth, formerly a Billings Chamber of Commerce executive, joined the KOA offices as manager. Under his leadership, KOA expanded services, locations, and programs. Several of the innovative programs initiated during this period included the KOA Campers Club, which provided members with benefits such as subscriptions to a camping magazine, a KOA travel bag, a decal, and most importantly, four free nights at a KOA. A national reservation system was implemented where campers could call in to make a reservation at any campground in the country. A national radio campaign was started where every Saturday and Sunday on NBC radio stations across the country KOA commercials would be heard during a program on camping. The company scheduled bus tours for their campgrounds for U.S. and international campers. And the KOASIS program in which campers could lease a trailer from one KOA and take it to other campgrounds was also started. The company experienced remarkable business growth during the 1960s as well, including increasing from 7 to 262 campgrounds. And in 1969, they moved their new headquarters to new headquarters in Billings, and the company went public with an initial offering of stock. During the early 1970s, marketing objectives for the KOA company shifted from expanding the campground system to putting more campers into existing campgrounds, although this effort did not deter the construction of many, many new KOA sites during this time. The first years of the new decade saw continued innovation in camper programs and campground developments. The RKOA program was initiated with locations in several western states. RKOAs, or Ranch Camps of America, offer campers a dude ranch experience at a camper's budget. The company owned properties, or COP program, grew substantially during this time as well. Although KOAs, a company already owned four properties, including a campground in Billings that encompassed part of Dave Drum's original campground on the Yellowstone. The COP program was expanded in the early 1970s, as several more company-owned campgrounds were acquired. During this time, the company expanded its scope of business from just campgrounds to include travel trailer manufacturing, with the purchase of Gardner Manufacturing of Elkhart, Indiana in 1971, who were makers of the Amerigo fiberglass travel trailers. But not everything was rosy for KOA. Oil embargoes in the Middle East that affected gas prices and fuel availability for all drivers also affected the camping industry. In 1974, the company experienced a drastic reduction in the value of their stock, as well as the loss of the Gardner Manufacturing Company, as their losses were so significant that they went into liquidation. But this dip was short in nature, and 1975 saw KOA back on the upswing as gas prices dropped and campers hit the road again. As they approached the end of their first decade and a half of existence, KOA focused their marketing campaigns on capturing campers, exploring the country to celebrate the U.S. bicentennial. In truly revolutionary fashion, KOA ended 1976 by celebrating having hosted 6.5 million camper nights, having a total of 817 campgrounds, with 51 of those in Canada and 4 in Mexico, and hosting its one millionth patron. The successes of KOA from 1962 through 1976 are remarkable, but what factors outside of the visionary company company leadership led to this success? And I'm going to turn the program over to Jody, who's going to talk about some of those factors.
1: Hello, everyone. One of the most interesting aspects of archival work is the research and writing that we do to place a collection within historical context, describing what the collection is about and why it's important. Molly has provided an excellent overview of the history of 20th century camping as have the Ladies on the Yellowstone Trail um, in the United States and early history of KOA. I'd like to take just a few minutes to explore the cultural context in which the KOA was born and thrived. I'll specifically focus on how the expansion of the national highway system, the growth of the national parks, and the mythology of the road trip fed the American desire to hit the road. Much of our history can be told within the context of movement, from nomadic native peoples to prairie schooner homesteaders to superhighway commuters, we have been and continue to be a people on the move. The scale of movement across the country was unprecedented in the middle part of the century, fueled in part uh, by the promotion and ultimate, ultimate construction of an expansive highway system authorized by President Eisenhower in 1956. National conversations about a transcontinental highway system date in earnest back to the 1930s, of course, with President Roosevelt's call to support such a system as a national security um, and employment program. World War II and political bit- debate kept these early discussions limited largely to studies rather than construction. But President Eisenhower had long been a supporter of an interconnected highway system in part because of his experiences in a 1919 heroin cross-country military convoy upon the Lincoln Highway, and in part a result of seeing European road systems, specifically the German Audubon, during his service during World War II. From the beginning of his administration, Eisenhower pushed again uh, to gain support in funding for the highway system. The culmination of this was the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956 which allocated 25 million, a billion excuse me, for work to be completed uh, by 1969, but of course it wasn't, it was actually the early 1990s, before it was completely finished. Eisenhower considered the act among the most significant in his presidency, saying, quote, more than any single action by the government since the end of the war, this one will change the face of America. Its impact on the American economy, the jobs it will produce in manufacturing and construction, the rural areas it will open is beyond calculation." And these quotes also give you a sense of, of how momentous uh, the, the um, interstate system was, Although the, the party um, we will take this nation out of its antiquated shadows of secondary roads, and we are living in the midst of a miracle. Not without detractors, the legislation did require promotion to sell the idea promotional materials, including videos, were produced to extol the virtues and necessity of the interstate system for national security as well as economic development. Even the detractors, however, weren't opposed to the idea of the highway so much as the way that it would be paid for, of course, uh, gas taxes, and how the money would be allocated. Uh, Populous areas wanted money apportioned by population and, of course, rural by acreage. By the time Eisenhower left office in 1961, 10,440 miles or 25% of the promised 41,000 mile interstate system had been open to traffic. This image is a portion of the interstate between Helen and Great Falls and really shows well the tricky terrain for some of that construction and the types of areas that were open as a result to travelers. So, with more roads to travel, where did Americans want to go? I found a wonderful book called Don't Make Me Pull Over, a history of the American road trip, um, that talks a lot about places that people wanted to go at this time amusement parks, national monuments, and all the roadside attractions that have built up in the 30s and 40s. Um, but they also mostly wanted to go to the parks. With good wages, affordable cars, and increased leisure time, post war Americans were primed to explore their country. Among the most popular places to explore were the national and state parks, but by the 1950s, we had nearly loved them to death. Something had to be done as the numbers of visitors were increasing each year. In 1956, the National Park Service launched what was called Mission 66, a 10 year plan to improve roads, utilities, and employee housing and with a special emphasis on visitor interpretive centers. The goal was to complete the upgrades in time for the park service 50th anniversary in 1966, hence the name. In addition to these upgrades, some parks were replanned and major um, construction projects were done. Other sites were reclaimed uh, to diminish the impact of visitor accommodations thought to be placed cl- too close to sensitive areas. For some the process was positive, for others um, you know, it was a way for Americans to experience the park system more fully. Uh, for others the impact on the land was too much and it's argued that this time period is when uh, these uh, improvements um, were the birth of the modern environmental movement. So people became divided about what the parks function were, was it conservation or was it recreation? Uh, often with the park service in the middle trying to balance the two. For today's uh, presentation though, I think the significance of Mission 66 is as a national call to improve and preserve the park system in order to accommodate the growing number of campers. The idea of a state park system uh, started as early as the 1920s under the influence of the conservation movement spearheaded by Teddy Roosevelt. During the Depression, the CCCs, as already mentioned, put scores of people back to work in the nation's forests and parks, building trails and infrastructure. During the 40s, of course, the national focus was on World War II. State parks, like National, experienced growth during the 50s and 60s as well. Work during the Kennedy administration's uh, Bureau of Outdoor Recreation ultimately led to the passage of landmark legislation like the National Outdoor Recreation Act and the Land and Water Conservation Fund in 1965. The side provided funds and matching grants to federal, state, and local governments to support recreation and the protection of natural natu- national natural treasures in the form of parks and protected forest and wildlife areas. Montana's first state park, uh, established in 1936, was those in Clark Caverns, which used uh, extensively CCC labor on its facilities and infrastructure. Uh, Montana State Park System officially started in 1939 but the funding really wasn't there and that the commission uh, dissolved in the 50s. It really, the state parks didn't come into their own um, until they were transferred to Fish and Game in 1965, along with the mandate to conserve and provide recreational and cultural resources. With federal and state support, the program flourished, and by 1978, with the name change of the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, um, the importance uh, and growth of the parks was really seen. So, at this point, we have the means, and we have the places to see, and we also have the romance, the tradition of the romance of the road pulling us to travel. Not that this really started in the 1950s. It started, uh, as the ladies um, indicated so well, as soon as there were cars to take the trip. Highly publicized auto adventures largely promoted by the auto industry (coughs) in Louisiana, um, like the trucks by the who or Ford, Edison, and Firestone, instilled the desire in many, but it was not really until the 1920s when cars became more affordable to some Americans that the road trip really took hold in the American psyche. Uh, In a Great Time magazine article called The Allure of the Road Trip in American Culture, I found the following quote. Philip Delaney, a Colorado, Colorado attorney and road trip enthusiast in the 1920s, said, When the automobilist is tired of the old, there are new paths to be made. He has no beaten track to follow, no schedule to meet, no other train to consider, but he can go with the speed of an express straight into the heart of the unknown. The allure, of course, spread and with growing numbers of what were called tin can tourists because of how they heated up their food on, um, on the um, yeah, cars. Um, There were businesses that formed to meet their needs, um, garages, gas stations, roadside cafes, diners, and of course, campsites, as as we've already heard. And all this fits into the story of K.O.A. very well. Another quote uh, for that time magazine article, as costs fell and reliability increased, as the successful outings of the few began to inspire the many, and as the thrill of the new technology spread through an ever wider range of populace, Motoring for Pleasure insinuated itself as a notion in the minds of Americans. So for the rest of my time, I'd just like to um, show some slides and some information from the collection. Um, We're really excited to have this collection because it fits within the arc of of material that we have on uh, transportation, on um, getting out there as Montanans to camp and so forth. Um, a lot of the material that we have was very early on, and this puts us right into the 21st century and recreation as Montanans know and love it. So this is just a reminder of, of what camping was in that uh, early 20th century. I love the, both of the images, but the one on the right is really fun. People got very creative about how they used <laughs> their cars uh, to do camping. I She's washing her hair. It's just quite fun. But what we're looking at uh, as a result, of the KO, KOA collection is a very different sense of camping. If you look at these images, you've got people doing recreational activities at the campsite, rather than the campsite being the ultimate destination or uh, stop along the way to someplace else. Um, the images here, you've
0: got the traditional KOA
1: um, major building with the A-frame. You've got a woman. I think uh, this, all of these are buildings, I believe. Um, the woman who's got a fish there that was in a stocked pond, so she could um, uh, do a little bit of fishing while she was in her camp experience, and of course, food—always food for camping. Go ahead. One of the um, major strengths within this collection is all the information about the franchisees and the role that it's played in the uh, company. Most of these images are from 1964 of different people who were franchisees. And as Molly stated, the um, significance of the franchise tri- program was really the stability from campsite to campsite um, so that folks knew what they were, were going to be getting. Uh, and part of that came from this idea of the KOA uh, universities which started in 1970 and that's an image of one of the universities. So that the franchisees get the sense of what the expectations are from the company. Uh, But also it's an opportunity for them to um, talk to each other about the challenges and so forth of running campgrounds. So it's a really great program and the information is in I think it will be wonderful for people to get a sense of how that training changes over time and what it means over time for the franchisees to participate. Uh, And of course there's always going to be one more back. There we go. There's going to be economic changes and so forth, and uh, this is just an image of the KLA executives in 1969 um, when uh, public conference were offered for the company. Uh, the other image I thought was fun because it shows the, the less button-down side of the executives, of course, how they're going to celebrate others, their effectiveness, and, OK, um, their successes, they're going to go camping, of course, and uh, this photo, I think, uh, The message on it said something about 400 miles into Canada. So we don't know exactly where they were, but they're having a good time. Um, Another thing that's really interesting within the collections is if you look at um, all the directories, and I put out a copy of one directory cover, and um, on the back are some recipes. But all of these directories are wonderful. pieces of history because they show the changes in camping over time, the campers campers themselves as well as the information provided by K.O.A. So you see the RVs here, Um, one of the images there says something to the effect of instant uh, instant vacation and that was kind of the mindset behind RVs, that you took your home with you basically. Very different mindset than getting out into the wilderness, like that earliest. Um, sense, or the earliest photo that I showed you about camping. The image in the upper right is the Amerigo camper that Molly mentioned. What I think is really neat about this piece is that if you look at the very back, that piece actually comes out, um, and so it kind of forms a little A-frame, and that's part of where the sleeping arrangements were. Um, I I just thought that was really very clever. Uh, And then, of course, the bottom one is just an example of a very modern, sort of a palace on wheels. some of these RVs are now. Um, of course, we, there's a lot of information on the promotion of the company and sometimes that was done with celebrities. We've got Hugh Downs, um, Olga Corbett, uh, in the lower hand there, I think that's Eric Mann. There um, there's also a lot of photos of uh, Miss Campground of America. And the upper piece I threw in because I thought that was fun, that's Jim Rogers. Uh, he was a uh, president of uh, KOE for many years, and he participated in that um, television show, show Undercover Boss. He's in Cognito there <coughs> <as well. laughs> Go. Ahead. And um, there's also a lot of information about obviously the finances of the company and how that changed over time. And this is just a reminder that this is an international company. Um, at one time, the company had uh, U.S., Canada, Mexico, and Japan um, sites. Um, predominantly now, it is the United States and Canada. But I think folks who are historians looking at the track and train of this company will have a really, um, there's really good information on there about how things changed and economics affected the company. Just a traditional, very early site. You see, this is, you know, this to me screened, this is. Um, I think I heard folks in the company to call it a plane chain. Um, just, you have really good, um, comfortable resources for you, but it's really sort of a, you pull in, you have your experience there, and then you move on to someplace else. As opposed to the next slide, which is just gorgeous. This is a destination place in and of itself, and that was a change that's shown through the records within the company as well. Um, if you look at the images there, you've got places with RVs, You've got cabins and you've got uh, vacation suites and just a ton of amenities. So these these um, directories are very interesting, showing uh, the development of the county over time. And this is just an image of uh, the inside of the, some of the cabins. Very nice. And of course, food. <laughs> you can't have camping without food. The directories for many years actually had. Um, in addition to where to camp and that sort of thing, there's a lot of information about how to camp and make your experience uh, make your most the most out of the experience that you can. And these are just some of the recipes that were in uh, a couple of those directories that I thought were really fun. And of course, uh, lots of information on the um, anniversaries and celebrations and things. We've got an image from a. a was picking for the, uh, the companies and franchisees getting together. The upper right hand, um, I'm not sure, but I think it's kind of fun. <laughs> uh, I think that probably comes over under the heading of what happens if the KOA maybe stays in the KOA, I don't know. <laughs> but there's lots and lots of really fun photos. And of course, none of this could have happened without the work of uh, Jim Graff, who worked for the company for many, many years retired and was pulled back in to be the archivist uh, for about 12 years and worked towards getting information put together in writings and so forth for the 50th anniversary and at this time I would like to call up Mike Gast
2: Uh, Thanks so much to Jody Molly and I I just wanted to uh, acknowledge some of the folks who got here from KOA today that that are responsible for this and uh, first off the leadership Uh, of KOA. Jim Rogers, who you saw at the undercover boss photograph. Uh, Jim was our our CEO for many years and uh, he had the original vision. He knew what we had in the building. We had a lot of historical uh, materials scattered through offices and file cabinets. And uh, Jim kind of got it coordinated by by bringing in uh, Jim Graff back in as our archivist and and uh, God bless Jim Graff, he, he went through everybody's offices, you couldn't keep them out of your desk drawers. Uh, every pin, everything that uh, he could find was, uh, was archived and put together. And if you've ever been out to our corporate offices on the fourth floor in TransWestern 3, you'll see uh, our walls are decorated uh, with KOA history as much as we could muster to put on the walls. Uh, Pat Hittmeyer, our, our current CEO, who couldn't join us today, uh, has a 36-year career now at KOA, so much of KOA's history is his history, and it was uh, it was interesting to watch when when uh, uh, when Jody was over collecting the materials we had uh, squirreled away in our basement. Uh, Pat came down and uh, just to, to see what was going on and, and to kind of see what what they were what they were gathering, and he lost himself for the afternoon in there. Uh, you could see him uh, reminiscing his entire life, uh, his working life through KOA. Uh, which was uh, was really, really fun to watch. And uh, and we, we've got uh, our, our, our current president. Uh, have, have, please stand up. Sorry, <laughs> our current president in that, <laughs> Toby O'Rourke. Uh, Toby is a Montana girl, long history in Montana. And to- Toby's only the sixth president of KOA in their fifty-six year history, so it's, it's a really short chain uh, of passing along. Toby's been nothing but supportive of what we've done here, and uh, uh, as Jim and I, had, uh, Jim Graff and I would have lunches over, over time, uh, it became evident that we had to do something with all this stuff, and we really didn't know where to go with it, and uh, and Bruce uh, Wittenberg, who I've got a history with, he was my boss of the Gazette, uh, uh, again, that short history leash that, that we're all tied together with. Uh, Bruce approached us, and, and we've talked with Jim, who made arrangements for this collection to, to be part of the of the permanent collection of the historical society. We're we're so happy that 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 happened, and and uh, I wanted to point out one more person, Doug Mullaney back there, who who I worked with. Doug is Doug is one of the guys now that's leading KO into the future. Doug is the guy that designs campgrounds for us, and makes the improvements, and and decides what comes next. So uh, our history is in really good hands because we've got guys like Doug over there. Uh, Planning the next the next level of KOA. So when you see when you see things like that, Cape Hatteras KOA, and the buildings, the facilities there now, a lot of that is his making. He's involved in all of that. So and and again, Doug had history back. He used to work with Bruce too over at the Gazette. So uh, so we've uh, we're all tied together. Our, our histories are intertwined. Uh, Fifty six years in, in Montana and in Billings, Montana, and we aren't going anywhere. Uh, We love it here, it just makes all sorts of sense and uh, we're at 508 now and growing.